Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. I'm delighted to welcome this week Graham Diap, who is a partner in LCP's pensions team. Graham helps defined benefit pension schemes to reduce risk and costs and run efficiently and effectively and improve security for members. But also, Graham is one of the team leading the research into climate change risk and helping firms find practical solutions to the risk and opportunities that climate change poses. He's also the chair of LCP's Winchester Communities Group, helping colleagues to fundraise and volunteer for charitable causes in the Winchester area. So welcome to the podcast, Graham. How are you doing? Thanks, Jess. I'm doing well. It's good to be here. And can I just say, Graham, that it's really exciting to have you with us talking about climate change today, because we in the insurance industry, I guess, we're lucky in the sense that from a regulatory point of view, we're lagging a, a little bit behind, let's say, pension schemes and certain other financial institutions. So I'm really keen to see what we can learn from the work that you and colleagues have done in the pensions industry, which has already had to kind of go through a lot of change on account of climate change regulation. That's right. Pensions world in the UK is leading the way here. I think £5 billion schemes were the first ones that were required to comply with full TCFD reporting globally. So we are learning as we go, but making a lot of progress. So, Graham, the topic that we're talking about today is how insurers are going to model climate change and the impact of climate change, not only on their assets, but on their liabilities. It's a topic that I'm really excited about because the rules have not been written yet. Best practice has not been established, not by a, a long shot. And the research that Jess and I and colleagues have done suggests that insurance firms have got a long way to go, especially on the liability modeling side. So again, I'm hoping that from some of the lessons that you and others have learned on the pension side, you'll be able to teach us a few things. I certainly don't have all the answers, Charles, but I think we, we can share some of the, the thinking and work that we've done so far on the, on the pension side. <laughs> Maybe we'll just start with what's the actual aim of doing modelling around climate change risk? So keeping that answer really simple, the idea is to help decision makers understand how climate risk could affect their business. So what we do is we look at several scenarios of the future, looking at different ways that the world could evolve in terms of carbon emissions and the way that that will affect the climate, and then try to build a picture of what that means for asset returns and what it might mean for liabilities. So in my world, in the pensions world, on the liability side, that means it's looking at things like long-term interest rates, inflation expectations, and longevity, really a big driver for the pensions liabilities. For insurers, we'll be looking at things, I imagine, like flood risk and how flood risk might change if the UK climate were to change over the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, so many factors that it touches upon that it's kind of hard to separate it out explicitly on its own is one of the kind of key challenges. Could you describe in maybe no more than two sentences what's the kind of high level approach 
you take to modeling climate change risk? So in terms of the way that LCP tackled this, we realized that we didn't have sufficient climate expertise in-house. So we entered into a partnership with a company called Ortec Finance, a Dutch-based consultancy that have a lot of expertise in the climate space. They, in turn, partner with a company called Cambridge Econometrics, which is a UK-based economics consultancy. They have an economic metric of the world, and essentially they combine their knowledge together to come up with potential future climate pathways, so the way in which carbon emissions and, and climate policy could evolve over time, and look to model that at GDP level for the 40 biggest economies in the world, and then translate that into the effects on equity markets, bond markets, guilt markets, and so on. So that sounds pretty exciting, a model of the entire world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I suppose when we think about general insurers, it really is the whole world we've got to worry about. Not every insurer needs to worry about the whole world. But if you take all the different classes of insurance business, they cover almost every conceivable aspect of day-to-day life and of the economy. And so I think for a lot of general insurers, there's a real quandary as to just where to start in modeling, especially the liability impacts of climate change. Agreed. There are many, many aspects that you could potentially model, and it's certainly difficult to know where to start. So the Cambridge Econometrics model is large and complicated. I think it's pretty obvious it's also far from perfect. (laughs) So we know that there are some aspects that are not modeled there. Interestingly, they do, for example, look in some detail at catastrophic weather events and how that can affect individual countries and how that might feed through into GDP. So, for example, in the US, if the number of extreme storms increases and causes lots of damage, that has an impact on on GDP, although that's not necessarily the one you expect in the sense that it generates more GDP in some cases because you have to buy all the stuff that got blown down. They also model at some detail things like sea level rises. So they'll look at various cities around the world, look at the projections of how sea level is expected to rise, for example, looking at things like the IPCC environment reports that include predictions on sea levels and try to work through when that means certain cities and certain areas of the country will fall underwater and try to build that into their GD modelling as well. Sea levels, I think, is pretty important. So if you take you know, a, an insurer who's insuring property risks, it really does matter which of those are likely to be underwater or affected in some direct or indirect way by the rising of sea levels. And I suppose that's something that insurers haven't had to model very much in the past. They tend to look at things like hurricanes and sort of short-term catastrophes, whereas this is a much more longer-term catastrophe. And again, the methodology, I suppose, just has not settled yet. There's not a best practice method necessarily of doing it. I think you're touching there on, Charles, one of the real challenges of climate modelling, which is that in the past, of other financial risk modelling, the way that we build that model is to look at what's happened in the past assume that the future is going to be roughly the same with some volatility, of course, and project the model in that way. The the problem with climate change is that we know we we have the scientists telling us that the world is not going to be the same in the next 20, 30 years as it has been for the last couple of hundred. That's sort of the key point. (laughs) So any model that doesn't try to take into account the fact that the climate is going to change will ultimately be flawed. And so chatting to some insurers, I know that 
they have a very good understanding of their current flood risks in the UK based on the last 50, 100 years worth of data. But what is really challenging is to update that modelling to allow for the fact that the weather is going to be different in the future. It's the classic thing, I swear, in all the actuarial exams is assumption past equals future. And <laughs> climate risk just annihilates that assumption completely and, you know, forces you to rethink all your approaches across all the kind of work because it's just such a fundamental assumption that we make in a lot of the work that we do. I guess what are some of the other key challenges that you face when modelling climate change risk? It's a big question. So I suppose the biggest challenge is trying to work out what the interactions are. And so the people that we work with, all taking Cambridge Econometrics, they have a model which is capable of looking at several policy levers for achieving a particular carbon pathway. And so they do attempt to model things like changes in whether petrol cars and diesel cars are allowed, changes in the way that electricity is produced in each country, and potentially carbon taxes or carbon trading schemes as well. But you can imagine that the interaction of those policies with the way the economy works and the way that capital flows through through the economy in, in different countries is complex. So making sure that, that that makes sense and comes up with a plausible version of the future is something that we spend quite a bit of time on reviewing, but also quite a bit of time with our clients when we're presenting this modelling to them to help them explain how we've tackled that and why this is a, a reasonable and plausible version of the future. Important to say, of course, it, it's not a prediction of the future. We're, we're not able to look into a crystal ball, but we are just trying to come up with a version that's credible. And that's the whole point of scenario analysis is to allow decision makers to think through that future. You've touched on a very important thing there, haven't you? That modelling is credible because we know the modelling will be wrong. (laughs) We know it'll probably be spectacularly wrong because (laughs) there just is no precedent for the stuff that we're trying to model now. However, to sort of throw up your hands and not model it, I think puts you in an even weaker position. And so I'm really encouraged to hear that firms like Autech are sort of looking into this and actually trying to model all these dynamics, even though no doubt there's all sorts of limitations to their models. And what we're finding now that we're building up quite a bit of experience in presenting this to clients and helping them to understand is that even if you can find corners of the model that you don't quite like, it is still an extremely helpful exercise in breaking climate down into some slightly more bite-sized chunks. So you can start to think about different areas of your asset strategy, for example, or different areas of your liability risks and identify which of those are going to be most important in the different scenarios that we consider. So obviously the physical risk, which we've touched upon quite a bit and, you know, is kind of can predict forward what flood might be like or hurricanes might look like. But then you look at the transition risk or liability risk and how that might impact claims. And that's a whole other kind of ball game in terms of working out what that might look like. Yes, but in many ways, of course, the transition risks are the much more immediate ones. They're the ones that are going to affect us and our clients over the next decade. It's not something where we have to wait until the 2030s to start to see the severe weather changes starting to come through. And you touched on COP26 earlier. Still, I guess, quite a lot of ambition at COP26 rather than concrete policy, but it's becoming increasingly obvious, I think, that we're going to see changes in policy, changes in consumer behaviour much, much sooner than 2030. It's something that you need to worry about today, not not next year or the year after. I would agree with you. And I think attitudes to climate change, attitudes to wider ESG issues, 
and especially attitudes to certain social issues are just changing at a pace that I don't think we've seen for many, many years. And COP26 was always going to be an inflection point. I think there's a natural tendency of politicians to want to save up some, some announcements for COP26. And so we've sort of seen things really accelerate in the last couple of weeks and hopefully uh, from, a, from a good citizen point of view, that will continue in the coming weeks and months and, and years. I have to say, with COP, I'm normally a very glass half full type person, very positive. <laughs> I feel like we're maybe slightly in a repeat of where we were in Paris. So we've got lots of commitments, lots of good positivity, but our countries, individuals, firms going to deliver against that is my hesitation. And are we just going to be here again in five years time kind of saying, oh, once again, we've got lots of good commitments. We made a bit of progress, but is it enough or is it too little, too late? I guess what are your thoughts, Graham, on that? I think I'm in a similar place, Jess. There's lots of ambition, lots of announcements on where countries want to be in 2030, 2050, or somewhat controversially, even 2060 or 2070 with some of the commitments. At the moment, I'm still a little bit sceptical, I suppose, that the policy, the concrete policies are there to back up those ambitions. And even where we have seen some concrete policies, and to be fair to the UK government, there have been some concrete policy announcements over the last couple of months in the run-up to COP26. In the most part, they tend to be a little bit underwhelming. <laughs> so they're, they're definitely moving in the right direction. They are putting some some money where their mouth is, but, but we're, we're talking single billions rather than potentially the tens or even hundreds of billions of, of investment that's going to be needed over the next 20 years to, to get us to where we want to be in 2050. Listen to one of the talks, which was looking at how the insurance market specifically is kind of contributing and how it's doing on its kind of climate targets. And, you know, I've heard some what I thought were initially really great announcements from firms about the work they're doing, maybe not underwriting certain risks anymore and starting to, you know, commit to net zero targets. But this kind of scorecard that they had set up really kind of the, the message from the talk was, yeah, it's good, but you're just not doing enough. Very much, I think, highlighting that the insurance market as a whole is probably behind some of the other financial services. And it's actually probably could be quite a key player more widely in terms of its contribution to climate change. We spoke about this on a previous podcast where if you can't insure it, then it can't go ahead. And so it's quite a powerful industry in that sense. And yeah, the talk was very much like got to do a lot more with this. Have there been any other kind of key announcements that you've heard from the talk that's caught your attention? A couple of announcements that were not at all trailed in advance of COP26. And so I suppose pleasant surprises that there was some international agreement in certain areas. So a couple of that spring to mind was the commitments on reducing methane emissions by 30% and a commitment to stop deforestation, both of which were very positive outcomes. Yeah, quite practical things, aren't they? Quite practical, but perhaps harking back to our, our earlier conversation, still not quite clear how those are actually going to be achieved in practice and quite how... Isn't it going to be by changing the <laughs> diet of all the cows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So definitely things are now pointing in a better direction, but the proof of the pudding will be in the eating over the next couple of years to see whether these policies actually start to, to come about. So the other key thing, and, and this has been all over the press coverage for the last six months, 
if we don't start to see changes over the next two years where we actually start to see emissions start to reduce rather than continue to rise, that's what makes this next two-year period a, a really key moment in that it will almost be impossible to achieve the Paris targets in 2030 if things don't start to move over the next couple of years. And as soon as you've given up on the Paris targets, 1.5 degrees as, a, as an ambition becomes almost impossible to achieve, according to the climate scientists. And we're into damage limitation. Is it going to be 1.6, 1.7? Can we keep it below 2? All of those temperature rises are associated with an increase in extreme weather. So it's not that we can achieve this and the climate will stay the same. We can expect that the climate will change. I think that is interesting for insurers because, of course, in the recent past, it's been difficult to ascribe any volatility in the catastrophe markets to, you know, is it climate change, is it not? But I think what you're saying is that if we don't hit certain of these targets, then we absolutely will see adverse impacts on extreme weather in the future. So I'm not a climate scientist, but that's what the climate scientists are telling us, as a lot of my research is confirmed. And there is a slow slow burn, if that's a politically appropriate term. But the fact that we're going to miss 1.5 degrees, we still might not see the really big changes in weather come through until the mid-2030s. But the challenge is that there's nothing we can do to reverse that effect once that process is, is set in train. It will come to pass. One of the announcements that I think was mentioned before COP was the government mandating the TCFD requirements for all firms that have more than 500 employees or have more than 500 billion turnover. Now, obviously, the pensions that was or for pension schemes that was already a requirement. I think the Department of Work and Pensions had, had put out. So, could you maybe just explain a little bit what TCFDs are and what that means for firms in order to comply with them? Sure. So, TCFD is the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. It doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, but it's a, an international body that put together a set of recommendations on what companies or pension schemes should be reporting about climate. So just taking a step back, the idea here is that until we measure what emissions each business or pension scheme is is accounting for, it's really difficult to check whether we're actually making any progress towards reducing those. Also, potentially, it's the first in a sequence that gets you to the point where you can start to legislate to require companies and schemes to reduce their carbon footprint. And it's fair to say we, we've not seen any policy ambitions from government or from the, from the UK government in that direction yet, but it seems like a pretty natural sequence that, first of all, you measure it, then you tax it, and then potentially if that hasn't worked, you mandate for reductions from there. The requirements are, are quite wide in scope, so they cover measuring what your emissions are, so the sort of metrics aspect. They do include, for pension schemes at least, a requirement to look at scenario analysis to understand what climate risks you're running and how those could affect your pension scheme or your business in the future. It requires you to report on all of that. And perhaps most importantly, it requires you to have engagement from all stakeholders within the organisation about what policies you're going to put in place to address and manage the risks that have been identified and track those over time to make sure that we're staying on top of those risks. It's also definitely a requirement, I think, for insurers to equally be using scenario analysis to help inform decisions or to kind of understand their climate risk exposures. 
how can scenario analysis and scenario modeling be used to impact strategic and business decisions? So the way that that works in practice is that you would typically pick three or four climate scenarios that you're going to use as the core of your analysis. So you might be aware that the PRA and the Bank of England ran an exercise over the summer called the Climate Planning Exploratory Scenarios, with, or CBES for short, where they proposed some scenarios and some of the 20 largest financial institutions in the UK were asked to apply those scenarios to their business. An important feature of those is they're not just one or two year scenarios, they're looking at the next 20 to 30 years of how climate can affect both assets and liabilities. And so taking some examples, you might look at a scenario where we expect the Paris Agreement targets to be met. So that means that the physical risks element is largely mitigated. But in order to achieve the Paris Agreements, we've seen a lot of transition in the economy and lots of things changing and stranded assets as we move to a low carbon economy. And in that scenario, you can imagine that you can start to drill into what that means for your asset portfolio, which of your the companies you hold are going to do well, which might be may do less well. And on the liability side, maybe that's the easiest scenario to consider because actually it's a situation where the, the physical climate effects have been largely mitigated. There's still some baked in effects that are already there come through, but, but you haven't got any severe changes to model. An alternative scenario that you might consider is what we call the failed transition. So this is the scenario where the world largely carries on as it is currently and carbon emissions continue to rise. And that means that temperatures aren't limited to one and a half degrees. We, we see temperature rises between three and four degrees by the end of this century. Now, in that case, the transition risks are very low because actually we've, the, the world hasn't changed and the economy hasn't, hasn't been updated. And so in that case, it might be a bit easier to look at what's happening in your assets because hopefully you know, you'd expect the same companies that are doing well today to continue to do well in the future. Where that raises big challenges on the insurance side is on the liabilities, where that means that we are expecting some pretty severe climate change effects to come through. Albeit, again, it takes a while for those to really manifest. So it being into the 2030s and beyond, where we start to see some really significant effects. What I think is then really useful once you've started to dig into those scenarios is you're not just looking at the assets and liabilities you hold, you're potentially able to look more broadly at what's happening in the economy at large. So in that failed transition scenario, for example, what the modeling or what the LCP and Ortex scenario see is generally GDP ends up being a lot lower than the base case scenario from 2040 onwards. And that's because there are lots of things weighing <laughs> across the global economy that are dampening down economic activity. And that can have some really significant impacts for companies, insurance companies included, at just about the level of business you expect to write and how profitable you can be. So, Graeme, it occurs to me that much as I hope the world finds better solutions to ensure a, you know, a positive transition, I suppose the failed transition scenario is quite an important one to model because there's a reasonable likelihood that we might go down that route. I think that's right. We don't attempt to assign probabilities to our scenarios. And that's partly because we, we only have three core scenarios in our analysis that aren't intended to be exhaustive. So they're designed to be quite middle of the road, plausible scenarios. There are plenty of other more extreme scenarios. So we do quite often get asked, which do we think is the most likely of our scenarios to play out? 
two or three years ago, we optimistically would answer that question by saying the Paris scenario, hopefully, is the one that, that's most likely to play out and hopefully the, the world's going to avoid the failed transition. Depending on how COP26 turns out in the end and what happens in the next year or two, you could argue that the Paris scenario, when we assume that the Paris Agreement is met, is becoming increasingly unlikely. So we've covered quite a wide range of topics today. Obviously, there's all the COP26 stuff going on. There's the question of how companies are going to engage with regulations like TCFD and then how they're going to manage their real-life climate risks. To sort of try and bring it together, if you were advising an insurance company who was looking to try and do more or raise the game on climate change scenario modeling, what would be some of the pointers that you would give them, Graham? So I think first thing to say is that every client we raise this with is really engaged. It's a topic that people want to talk about. And with COP26 being so hard to miss at the moment, it's a topic that people expect to be talking about. So if you, I think it's got to the point where if you don't raise it with your clients, actually they're a bit taken aback and surprised. And in the insurance company context, that almost certainly means your boss will be sitting there thinking, when do we need to talk about this? And potentially your customers will be thinking, what is this company doing about its climate risks? And so certainly in in the larger firms that we work with, we're seeing a focus on reputational risk. They need to be seen to be taking this seriously. They need to be seen to be taking appropriate action and, and managing these risks appropriately. And if that's not happening, then you are running the risk that you become targeted by activist investors and that can tarnish your brand. I think the second thing to take away is that there is a lot of data out there. It can be a challenge trying to find out exactly what data is available and, and how to get hold of it and how to build it into your modeling. But there are firms out there that specialize in this stuff and who should be able to help you. Graham, thanks so much for joining us today. I've personally found that really interesting. I could talk about climate change constantly it feels like and it's becoming more and more of I think what we do in our jobs every day so I guess something fun to end on what is one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV so the fact is that I live in a carbon neutral house see I personally think that's so cool (laughs) (laughs) that is amazing so so what 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 makes it carbon neutral so as with all carbon commitments, you need to be a little bit careful about what I mean when I say that. (laughs) (laughs) So we have an energy performance certificate rating of 101. And what that means in reality is that we have solar panels on the roof that generate more electricity over the course of the year than we used to heat the house and hot water over the course of the year. Now, the small catch is, of course, that the solar panels generate most of their energy in the four summer months in the middle of the year when we don't need any heating. (laughs) Whereas the heating, we need November, December, January, February. So although we produce net zero over the course of a year, it's sort of net surplus for the summer and a a net deficit for for the winter. But it's still a good place to be. Absolutely. It's a very good start. Have you got any recommendations of stuff to read, listen to, watch that you've particularly enjoyed recently? So I was going to share on this one, given my role within LTP, I get lots of colleagues asking me questions about various things that they can do personally to improve their carbon footprint. So lots of questions about electric vehicles, heat pumps, solar panels. So perhaps controversially, I'm going to suggest that Facebook is actually a really good source to learn about those sorts of topics. 
So there's lots of really good groups, uh, easy to find, where you get often need to get a good mix of installers, so professionals and consumers discussing the, exactly the sort of questions that you might have in mind. You know, how much does the heat pump cost? How am I going to charge my electric car when I don't have a driveway? And that, that sort of question. What I found, although you know, never read anything you read on the internet, but what you, <laughs> at least what you get is quite a balanced view in those groups where you might get you know, several different views expressed on a particular post. And I find that gives you a really good set of inspiration to go away and, and research the right kind of things and, and formulate your own views. That's brilliant. I'm glad Facebook is doing something positive (laughs) for society. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.